Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While Ontario continues to face massive labor shortages across a variety of industries, how can we prepare for the workforce of tomorrow? Despite a decline in general inflation, grocery prices continued to skyrocket. Matter of fact, they've doubled the rate of just about everything else. That could mean more rate hikes after the Bank of Canada has a look at that. How can we get inflation under control? And what's happening at Roxham Road? Tasha Curitan, principal and navigator and an author of The Right Path, will join us to discuss that issue. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Things changed dramatically, of course, as we know, uh, through the course of the pandemic. Is it going to go back to the way things were? Or are employers starting to look outside the box to find some things? Well, here's a poll that was recently done that suggests that 81% of Canadian workers want flexible work arrangements and are willing to leave their job if they don't get it. Don Kelly has details. The survey by Cisco Canada indicates that while employees increasingly expect flexibility, employers continue to see hybrid work arrangements as a perk. Flexibility emerged as a top priority for workers in the survey, second only to salary. The survey also found most employers are tightening hybrid work policies and bringing in mandatory office days, considering hybrid work as a benefit, while employees feel like it's expected. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Which ties very nicely into uh, what our next guest is going to talk about. Uh, the uh, Ontario Chamber of Commerce has been studying this too, and there's a, an open letter that uh, their uh, CEO and president has written. It's called, We Need to Prepare Now for the Workforce of Tomorrow. Rocco Rossi, of course, is who we're talking about, the President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Rocco, uh, been a while. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this, because uh, th- we've been talking around this issue for some time, and I know there have been a number of surveys done uh, about what it's going to look like, uh, hybrid work, remote work, uh, or is it going to go back to the way things were pre-COVID? Uh, I, I got the sense from from the uh, the open letter that you wrote here that uh, we can't afford to go back to the way things were. It's a changing world, and, and here in Ontario, we have to adopt to that change. Well, first off, I want to I want to point out that this actually doesn't apply to the entire economy. There are a ton of people, uh, heroes who have to wake up every day and go into their place of work, whether it's in construction or stocking shelves in grocery stores or pharmacy. They can't do that on their laptop. Uh, and that is still a significant portion of the population uh, for within those that you know, some are calling the laptop class, uh, or people where there is that uh, there is that flexibility. There's no question um, that there are enormous advantages uh, from having flexibility. But flexibility doesn't mean never be in the office. Um, it is important for productivity, for brainstorming, uh, for uh, building out corporate culture. Um, that that people spend some time uh, in uh, in the office and getting that balance is is important. But flexibility is also enabling, um, you know, lots of people to be able to, for instance, raise their family. And this this unfortunately still affects more women than uh, than men as the primary ch- child rearers. Um, that that additional flexibility is crucial. And at a time when there are massive labor shortages across the economy. Employers are being very careful about how insistent because they are concerned that if others provide more flexibility, they'll lose key employees 
uh, in a in a tight labor market. Yeah, as, as I read your piece uh, last night, and uh, it's it's fascinating. It's a, uh, I, I think an indicator of where we need to go and where the, the the employers need to go, where the government needs to go too, with the mindset. It it, it kind of reminded me of discussions you and I've had over the years about about flexibility in this workplace and how other parts of, of the globe have been doing it differently. Uh, some places in Europe, certainly in Scandinavia, uh, and in some Asian countries where they've already adopted these flex hours and and more flexibility for employers, uh, maybe even more time off. We're going to talk later in the program today about a uh, you know, four-day work week. Uh, and, and more times than not, Rocco, as you and I both know, that in the past, anytime anybody brought those things up, it was, no, 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 production's going to fall off. We just can't do that. Sorry, I don't care what they're doing over there. Uh, and it was, you know, you're going to work Monday to Friday. You're going to do your 40 hours, uh, and, and you're going to get your two weeks holidays or three weeks or whatever it is. I, I, I think the times are changing, and I think most employers are starting to understand that now, aren't they? A hundred percent. And, and, you know, we've effectively had a almost three year forced experiment because of COVID um, that blew up a lot of the myths of what is possible and what isn't. That said, it also underscores uh, the challenges in a number of areas because not all entities um, are as um, well provided, if you, if you will, in terms of the infrastructure of uh, remote uh, work. There are some uh, jobs where uh, you'd like to think it could be done remotely, but but it can. I'll give you a perfect example. It involves the the government, and another issue that's actually uh, exacerbating the the labor issue, and that is immigration. Mm-hmm. The immigration process is not Shopify. It is still largely paper uh, based. And that requires people to actually be in the office because they can't take passports home with them or visa information home with them. And so if you don't have that capability, that full-time capability to be able to do all of that work uh, remotely, you have to, in effect, insist that people are in the office as you're building up that capability because otherwise what's happening is a massive uh, backlog in that work. And that's just one example. In another area, I think about young people beginning their career. It is, it is relatively easy uh, you know, for, for gray hairs like you and me uh, who've been brought up in, in a specific culture potentially to do more uh, remotely, but someone just beginning their career most of what I learned, as I'm sure you learned, was was by osmosis within the office, watching managers do good and bad things uh, to, to to learn about how to better myself within within that culture. And we're losing that opportunity because that's not so easy to do on Teams or Zoom. And and again, as you say, that's going to vary from occupation to occupation and, and job to job. There are, are some things where, you know, that flexibility that we've talked about may not be as achievable. And, and you mentioned could be in the agri-food sections, a, a number of different things that are going on. And those all need help. And and that kind of circles back to what you and I have talked about since this pandemic began, certainly, but even before that, I think, is skilled trades and the uh, the number of skilled trades uh, des- uh, openings that there are these days. I mean, you know, there's some very qualified, very capable and very successful people in all of these endeavors. Uh, but uh, you use the term gray hairs, Rocco. I mean, you know, a lot of them are retiring now because they figured, okay, it's time to move on. And uh, there aren't enough people to fill those gaps that have those same skills. It is something that absolutely keeps me up at uh, at night because, 
You're right. Uh, if you take a look at the average journeyman and pick the trade from carpenter to electrician to welder in the province of Ontario, it's in the high 50s. Uh, and so we're aging out in key areas that are going to be required for all of these, you know, massive infrastructure uh, programs that have been uh, announced from from transit to um, to nuclear reactor refurbishments to building out the electricity grid for the green transition. And we've spent a couple of generations telling our kids in school, well, if you're really smart, you need to go to university. Not quite so smart, we'll get you to community college. You don't make the grade, maybe uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll find a trade for you. And the net result of that is my plumber can buy and sell me four times over. He's got a place in Georgian <laughs> Bay, another uh, in Scottsdale, and runs a phenomenal business. The average welder at the Darlington nuclear plant refurbishment right now is making between $150,000 and $200,000 a year. You talk about a pathway to uh, middle class and better. Uh, there are great opportunities and there are necessities for the, for the economy. So, for instance, even as immigration is happening, we need people who not only want to buy houses, we need people who know how to build houses. And so that's got to be part of the filtering process to be strategic about this incredible opportunity we have as a country that continues to be a magnet for people from around the world. Yeah, we just uh, had the president and CEO of the the Home Builders uh, Association on yesterday. He says, "Is these these goals the province is setting are fabulous and laudable? But who's going to build them? We don't have enough people." So I get where you're coming from, and you talk about that, Rocco, in, in the piece that that I read last night uh, about a skills mismatch that's occurring here, and and you're you're concerned that it's only going to get worse. Explain that to us. Well, look, we've known for a long time, as with most uh, developed economies, that we're aging out. Uh, we have a rapidly aging population and absent um, immigration, we're actually shrinking. So uh, as people come to uh, retirement age, uh, you're having a lot of people leave areas and we've not really thought through, despite the fact that this was completely predictable. I mean, the actuarial tables, you knew in the year 2000, who would be rough numbers how many 25-year-olds you would have in 2025. There's no surprise there, plus or minus a little bit with immigration. Um, and you could predict those numbers. You knew how many retirees there were going to be. Back in the 1950s, there were uh, four people working for every person retired. By the 2050s, you'll actually have almost an even number of those working, those retiring, and then you start turning to fewer people working versus those retired. So think about what that means to taxes. Think about what that means to keep um, pension sustainable, to keep our social services network sustainable. And you'll see what, what, what we're talking about as a, um, as a key strategic area that governments, schools, and society need to be talking about and need to be acting on immediately. 
Well, and, and as you say, it, it's market-driven to a certain extent. And you mentioned about your, your plumber having a nice place up in Georgian Bay. Uh, a lot of us gravitated up there during the pandemic, you know, to, first of all, to get away from the city for a variety of reasons. And and, uh, and then now we're starting to see some, some edu- a, a movement here, almost an exodus into some of these areas. Good luck finding a tradesperson. You want to build a deck? Not going to happen anytime soon. You want to get the pipes fixed? Uh, We really need those people. But is the province doing enough to encourage and and channel people into into those endeavors and into those trades? I mean, as you say, the pay is lucrative. uh, The hours are pretty good. uh, But generationally, we've not really done a whole lot to encourage people to say this is a a great idea and a great way to, to make a living and contribute to the economy. I want to give a big tip of the hat to Labor Minister Monty McNaughton, who's really been beating the drum on this and and taken a number of really crucial steps. Uh, We're also seeing it in the healthcare area, the recent announcement. Uh, I mean, think about this, Bill. They had to announce that nurses trained in the rest of Canada not not foreign trained nurses, you know, people from Manitoba and Quebec and BC can, as of right, work as nurses within Ontario. So we've had these barriers and we still have them in a number of professions where you do not have labor mobility across this country. How is that possible? How does that make any kind of sense in a time of labor shortages to do that? How does it make sense that we give people points in the immigration process if they've been trained in skills that we need. And then when we come here, we don't recognize those skills. We don't recognize those credentials. They're caught in this ridiculous, uh, vicious circle that makes no sense and hurts both them and our economy. So the credentialing area is is a key part. We need to do more within our education system, but we also have to look ourselves in the mirror and be encouraging our kids to look at broader options for what kind of careers they want to pursue because that mismatch in skills is also about you want to look at what the market needs are going to be and give people appropriate information about what choices are out there and what things could offer lucrative paths for them to build a life for themselves and their families. Uh, we're just about out of time, but I just want to yeah, uh, give a shout out to, to Minister McNaughton too. Uh, we've hit him on the program a number of times and this this is a passion for him. Uh, and, and we need more of that passion, I think, to, to try to move the yardsticks as far as it goes. Uh, it's a great piece. It's called We Need to Prepare Now for the Workforce of Tomorrow. Uh, and it's it's not something in the hypothetical. It's something that has to happen now. Uh, Rocco, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks as always for shining a light on these key business issues, my friend. Take care. Rocco Rossi, the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Statistics Canada says headline inflation was down from 6.3% in December, noting the annual inflation rate will continue to slow in the coming months. The last time inflation was below 6% was in February of last year, when it was at 5.7%. The headline rate came in lower in January than many commercial banks were anticipating in their forecasts, signaling good news for the Bank of Canada. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Lisa Laporte. 
All right. So we know that inflation has gone down, maybe even a little more than they had anticipated. But uh, what does that mean? And, and how are the banks going to react? And how are you going to react? This is the Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML Hamilton. Uh, to get some insight into this, please to welcome back to the program, Moshe Landu, who's a, a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. Are we in a vicious cycle here? Uh, you know, to, to try to, to beat inflation, we have to keep prices low. Prices are not getting low. Does that mean we have to raise interest rates even higher, even though inflation seems to be going down incrementally? Possibly. It, it really depends on how credible people believe the Bank of Canada is in bringing inflation down to 2%. Mm. So if everybody believes that they're going to accomplish their goal within the next 12 months, like they say, then you would assume that some of this pricing pressure uh, and this opportunism by some firms would stop. Uh, but if people don't believe that the Bank of Canada is credible, if the Bank of Canada is saying 2% in the next 12 months and people say, yeah, I really think it's going to be 4 then you can understand why businesses would be apprehensive about only increasing their prices 2%. So uh, somebody has to blink here, though, don't they? Yeah, and unfortunately, the Bank of Canada is going to win this blinking contest, right? Uh, because they have an unlimited capacity to raise interest rates. So if if businesses refuse to get it through their heads that this is going to stop uh, and soon, then the Bank of Canada, like they said, they, they can just increase interest rates and, until people realize that they do mean business. How close are we to, to what I think could be a, a, a bad move, in some cases a catastrophic move, where the government looks at this cycle that we've just talked about and says, okay, we have to, we have to step in here? Because uh, they've tried to do that in the past with things like wage and price controls, and uh, it, 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 it was a colossal failure. Uh, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't try something like that again. I would like to think that our current prime minister heard a couple of things at the dinner table when he was a child about price controls <laughs> yeah. and maybe learned a lesson of what damage that can do to a party uh, if you try that sort of thing. So I, I'm hoping that as long as he's the prime minister and as long as that's the party in power, I don't know that we're going to see that that type of catastrophic decision making take place. Uh, I I concur, by the way, and I, I'd like to think that yeah, he did get get that was that should have been one of the takeaways from the dinner table during, in, back in those days, uh, because it, it just it, it's like the old adage. I mean, there's a balance here. There's you know the as soon as you start messing up with the balance of nature, you mess things up. But e economics is pretty much the same way, isn't it? When you try to insert something and say, wait a second here, I think I can I can help. Uh, invariably, you mess up that balance, and who knows how what's going to happen. Yeah, and, and, and usually, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those economists that generally believes in the power of the market. And so government intervention is usually only justified when you have, say, some sort of abuse of market power. And usually the correction there is not necessarily price control, but trying to eliminate the market power. Or where you have something called externalities, where your decision is spilling over and interfering with somebody else's ability to make their decisions. But, but outside of that, usually... Governments don't need to get involved in these sorts of price controls. This is just the market naturally reacting to the incentives that are placed in front of it. And so if the issue here is that businesses are taking advantage of the opportunity to raise their prices unnecessarily, uh, then remove that impetus and, and higher interest rates and uh, raising borrowing costs and trying to slow down the economy is a really good elixir to, to counteract that behavior. And, and I think the, the the governor, Tiff Macklin, the Bank of Canada governor, that is, uh, made that clear, I think, last week when he was before the parliamentary committee, uh, when he said he hit the pause button, he said it was just the pause button. He says, I'm not shutting this thing down. Uh, he seemed to indicate that the high prices are still going to be a factor here. And uh, it, it seems to me anyway, Moshe, that he, he would sh show no hesitation at all uh, to get right back on the interest hike, uh, you know, 
paradigm once again if he realizes that's the only way he's going to be able to stop this. Yeah, I, I think Canadians should not underestimate the, the person that's in charge of the Bank of Canada. It's not some random schmo that they picked off the street, right? It, it's not I'm in charge of monetary policy here. This is somebody who's extremely skilled and knowledgeable in how interest rates work and how the economy functions. And he, he's not sitting there looking into some crystal ball deciding that I wonder what this will do. They have extremely advanced models that simulate all kinds of possible responses to these interest rate hikes. And so it, it, it's still an inexact science, but it's a science. And so the, the reality is that uh, he knows what he's doing and he has a bunch of people up at the senior level of the Bank of Canada that know what they're doing too. And so I, I think if, if they're talking about a pause or if they have to unpause, they, they have a rough idea of what they're doing. And so I, I think we should take it seriously. Well, when you listen to Macklem's comments last week, and, and they echo the comments of, well, his U.S. counterpart from the Federal Reserve, of course, Jerome Powell, and uh, even uh, Canadian labor economist Jim Stanford, who's been a guest on this show many times, uh, they, I don't want to necessarily say it's finger pointing, but they're saying, don't blame us for doing this. Talk to the people that are raising prices. Uh, they're the ones that are actually throwing fuel on the fire here. Is, is that a legitimate complaint? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, Look, if input costs are rising because of supply chain issues uh, and you pass along that cost, that makes business sense. Uh, if what you're doing is sensing that there's this gap in the marketplace here and so through opportunism, you're just increasing your price because you have this market power, uh, that's not acceptable. And that's exactly what I was saying a few minutes ago where, you know, if the government yeah. did want to get involved – uh, and take some sort of action. It's not through price control, but it's through punishing people that are are opportunists. Uh, and, and one way that you can do that is by introducing competition, which is something that's increasingly disappearing from this country and, and allowing these sorts of behaviors by businesses to take place. So it's not the Bank of Canada. Uh, it, it's maybe the the absence of competition that would keep a check on those price increases. Well, and to that end, there has been some some finger pointing. It's blah blah. Some of the other grocery giants, uh, you know, some MPs want to haul them up there and just say, "Hey, what do you guys think you're doing?" Etc. Uh, blah blah's announced that they're going to reveal what they call corporate results today uh, that are going to give an indicator as to whether or not the food retailer is actually overpricing goods. Uh, I'm not a betting man, Moshe, but I'm going to say, "Hey, nothing to see here. We're just doing fine. Thank you very much. We're just scraping by like you guys are." It, uh, is there a little fact and fiction in that, or is it, is it leaning one way or the other? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think that they're going to come out and say our uh, internal review has revealed that yes, we have been price gouging. Right? <laughs> uh, that that would be a, a little bit of a, a suicidal sort of behavior by a, a business. So, yeah, of course, they're going to say that no, everything that we've done is is within uh, reason. But you know, one way that I, I would uh, present it is let's say that uh, my cost. Uh, is a dollar and I mark up my prices 100%. That means that I would be selling a product that costs me a dollar for $2. Let's say that my suppliers increase uh, their prices so that it now costs me a dollar fifty. If I'm marking up 100%, I'm not going to charge $3. What you would see on the other side is that my profit margin has gone from a dollar to a dollar fifty, and you could accuse me then of of taking advantage of the situation. But uh, I would counter that I'm doing exactly what I've always done, which is just mark up a hundred percent. That sort of situation then is where we start getting into you know parsing words and trying to uh, figure out is what they're doing responsible, ethical, uh, or, or just good business. 
but this is the chicken and egg argument, isn't it? <laughs> you know, okay, it's it's just because, you know, the cost of living and inflation has gone up that all of a sudden you're noticing it. And, uh, we, we talked about that yesterday on the program with this uh, April 1st increase and in, in, uh, the tax on, on liquor in the, in the Canadian. It's a Canadian policy, of course. It's happened before, but we didn't pay much attention to it because, well, inflation was down and, you know, okay, it went up a couple of cents, but big deal. But when you're paying more for everything and then you see the price of lettuce, you're jumping up and down. Uh, and, and you might say, well, that's just the circumstance. But is it is it valid to use a follow up question? Yeah, but you created the circumstance, didn't you? Well, I, I, again, I, I think that the circumstance was supply chain issues, and that I, yeah. I don't think that was businesses doing right. That was COVID, and that was the responses of governments to try and ensure the safety of its citizens. Right. So this is the unintended consequence of that behavior and, and that decision. Uh, if businesses then take that opportunity uh, to try and boost their profitability. Again, that that's the ethical element, right? From a good business standpoint, uh, I mean, good business is that you take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves to to boost your bottom line. And so, you know, we have this trade off here where, uh, on the one hand, if you're a shareholder, you're going to shrug and say, "I don't see anything wrong with what went on," uh, but if you're a customer on the other end, uh, you know, you have a problem with it, vote with your feet, go to a competitor that that didn't take advantage. Uh, we've seen, for example, I, I think it was Pizza Pizza is offering some guarantee that they're not increasing prices for all of 2023, uh, probably to steal a march on Little Caesars and Domino's and say that, look, if they want to increase their prices, they're perfectly allowed to. But if you find that objectionable, uh, come buy your pizza here. Well, it'd be interesting to see just uh, what this report says. I, I, I guess, quick, I know we're just about out of time here. Do we look further up the chain then instead of looking at Loblaws and Metro and, and, and Sobeys? Do we say, okay, who's supplying that stuff? Maybe maybe that's the problem or is it just a systemic problem? Yeah, no, that, you're exactly right, Bill. And that's the thing is that for the, the forward-facing element is Loblaws. And so it's easy for us to put our uh, attack on them because that's what we see. Uh, if you start going up that supply chain, we start entering into firms that we've never heard of. And so it's hard to be angry at somebody that you don't even know exists. Yeah, yeah. Well, Galen Weston is the face. Uh, so I guess he's going to have to bear some of the brunt for this. Uh, Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University uh, in Montreal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We mentioned about how the uh, the liberals, federal liberals, that is, have not fared very well in Quebec in the last little while when it comes to some of the national polling. And the main problem for that is uh, is quite simple, of course. They count on provinces like Quebec, especially uh, for that solid base of votes. If, uh, in fact, the next federal election comes along anytime soon, they need Quebec, and uh, well, they need Ontario as well. But Quebec is a key part to that, and uh, it may or may not be happening now. The block is solid; we know that. But th- one of the reasons for some of the frustration and maybe some of the uh, uh, the the trouble the federal liberals seem to be having in garnering support in Quebec right now uh, is because the prime minister and the premier are butting heads on a number of key issues. One is the health care deal, of course. The other is immigration. And uh, to that end, uh, there has been a, a big kerfuffle, I think justifiably so, about uh, Roxham Road, uh, which is uh, basically an illegal entry point uh, for people that want to come into this country and seek asylum. Uh, Premier Legault has been very upset about that in the last little while. I'm sure you've seen some of the coverage on this on the national news. Uh, the prime minister, though, is uh, being defensive about this and saying that closing the busy Roxham Road border crossing would only increase irregular migration between Canada and the U.S., 
Uh, the prime minister told reporters that uh, putting up barricades at the Quebec crossing would not solve the problem. The problem is we have 6,000 kilometers worth of undefended shared border with the United States. And as we saw with tragedies at Emerson, as we've seen uh, in challenges elsewhere across the country, people will choose to cross elsewhere. All right. Uh, that's that's his stand, and he seems to be sticking to it. Uh, the premier has a much different idea. Uh, opposition leader Pierre Polyev has a much different idea. And uh, they're actually accusing the, the prime minister of dragging his heels on this. Uh, a great piece about this uh, from our next guest, uh, Tasha Carradine, is the principal and navigator and author of a book called The Right Path. Uh, an interesting read, to be sure, about the Canadian political scene going forward. Uh, Tasha, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, yeah. How many years ago did we look at what was going on at the American-Mexican border and say, oh, boy, thank God that sort of thing doesn't happen here? It has been happening here for quite some time, and it just seems that every now and then we get laser-focused on it. There was some terrible incidences in Quebec where some people died a couple of years ago in wicked winter weather. It's like we're having here in southern Ontario now. Uh, but now it's, it, the, the focus now seems to be uh, on Roxham Road, which is not a new problem. It's been there for quite some time. We we need a solution to this. I think everybody's agreed upon that. But the the, pre, the prime minister's mindset here seems to be, uh, let's negotiate. Well, that could take months or years if they're even going to negotiate at all, couldn't it? Um, it could. It should have been done long ago. Uh, if we take our minds back to how this all started, it was in 2017. Uh, Donald Trump was in the in the White House. We were renegotiating NAFTA. Um, he had his anti uh, his Muslim ban edict that came out that prohibited travel from six majority Muslim countries. And then Justin Trudeau tweeted out, we welcome people of all faiths, you know, welcome to Canada. Um, Roxham Road really ramped up after that, as well as another edict against um, Haitian uh, refugees in, in the U.S. overstaying visas that, that Donald Trump also made. So you had this rush to Roxham Road that from a trickle became a flood of people. And Justin Trudeau at that time, I understand why in the immediate frame he didn't uh, poke the bear, so to speak, because we were renegotiating NAFTA. There was a lot of tension with with the Trump administration. But since then, you know, we have a friendly administration in now. Um, There's no excuse to not deal with this. Um, Negotiations don't have to take forever. I think that he should make it a priority. If he doesn't make it a priority, yes, it will drag on. Well, talk to us about priorities then, um, because some of the coverage I'm hearing from different people that have had uh, some opportunity to weigh in on this uh, have said that uh, the, the deal we're talking about here, by the way, is called the Safe Third Country Agreement between Canada and the U.S. Uh, and uh, just for context here, uh, does the U.S. have any interest at all in renegotiating that deal? Or do we even know that yet? Well, this is the thing. We know that the United States seems to be seeing this also as an opportunity to send potential refugee claimants out of the country. Uh, New York City is actually paying people to take buses to the border um, (laughs) to get rid of their potential refugee problem. Why? Because they see it as a drain on social services, the same as the way Quebec sees it, that people are coming in. Um, in an uncontrolled way, in large numbers, all at once, our social services are already taxed, healthcare, education to the max because of the pandemic um, and the, the economy. So it's the absolute wrong time to have this additional pressure. So yeah, the U.S., to your point, I think if I was a cynic would say, no, they don't really have an incentive. But at the same time, um, you know, they want our collaboration on other things, including, interesting. 
interestingly enough, national security issues now around China in particular that the U.S. is taking very seriously and that Canada is seen as a real weak link, as we now know um, from recent revelations. So, you know, if, if Trudeau were to get his act together on that piece and say, look, we'll 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 fix things for you there. Um, we'll tighten stuff up. We'll pass a, a foreign um, agents registry, the kinds of things the U.S. has already done. Maybe that would give some incentive for them to then say, okay, we will quid pro quo, renegotiate this deal on the border and make it so there are no loopholes. Because the problem with that agreement is it creates a huge loophole for illegal points of entry. Um, If you expanded it and simply said that anyone who comes to, to another country after being in a first safe country, whichever way they get there, can be turned back, then we wouldn't have this problem. But it doesn't say that. It only says if you cross legally that you could be turned back. And that's the problem. So. So let's talk about the logistics here, and 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 your point's well taken, because I, I saw one of the commentators, I think it was on Vashi Krell's show last night, simply saying, uh, you know, w- w- will Biden and Trudeau talk about this when they have their meeting in Ottawa next month? Oh, it's too soon. But this has been going on for six years. It's not too soon. Somebody somewhere down the diplomatic chain must have been, had this on their radar and talking about it, or have they? Um, I'm not sure if it's on the, the diplomatic piece. I think it is really, um, it, it became an issue for a number of reasons also because, um, and again, this is, political. Um, you know, this, the problem seemed, first of all, contained to Quebec, because that was the main focus of the crossing. Um, so the rest of the country didn't see it. Politically, it wasn't an issue for the rest of the country, uh, for the Liberals. Only, But secondly, also, a lot of the people who are crossing, there's a large Haitian community in Montreal. And if you know what's happening in Haiti right now, it's a disaster, humanitarian disaster. Nobody wants to go back. So those Haitian... Um, agreements that I mentioned earlier that Donald Trump had said, you can't stay here, you've got to go back. And he reversed a policy that allowed them to stay longer. Um, if, if, if Justin Trump is down, will that implicate or that will affect that community? And this a large community actually, I think also in his riding, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that may be a political factor. And the problem with that is that there are ways to handle that. They could make claims in the United States. Um, there are other ways, humanitarian ways, one could say that people could get faster processing or whatever. But the point is they aren't, it's, we can't just let people cross into the country illegally in large numbers in an uncontrolled way. It's also a security issue. Um, because if anyone does have malign intent to our country, it's a perfect backdoor to come, you know, negative things to our democracy or to who knows what else. Well, and I don't know if we can learn from the uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we're not going to build a wall, by the way, notwithstanding what some people suggested. Uh, but but they did try to alter some of the processes they did. They not where it said, okay, fine, you you have to actually qualify on that side of the border and, and then you can come over. I don't know how well that worked, but uh, but it's an I guess an option here. But that puts the onus on the U.S. Then, and I'm not so sure they'd be comfortable with that. Well, here's the thing: um, we don't know until we try. And what we do yeah. know is we've spent 93 million dollars last year, 93 million dollars on hotel rooms on this side of the border to accommodate newcomers or potential refugee claimants, who in many cases weren't even filling those rooms. So the problem is you've created an entire industry around this, right? You've got hotels on this side of the border that are booked up thanks to the government. They don't want this situation to end. It's money for them. You've got taxi drivers on the south side of the U.S. who are making you know, money. And in fact, even um, there was, a, I think, a border agent. There was a law enforcement professional in the United States who was moonlighting, driving people for $60 a pop from the bus station to the border 
in, in New York state. Like the, the, <laughs> there's all sorts of crazy stuff that's grown up because we haven't dealt with this, as you pointed out in the last six years. So it is time to deal with it. Um, and we have to try. And I think, yes, that is a perfect opportunity for Trudeau to raise it when the two of them do meet in Ottawa. You mentioned the politics and that, that's, that's going to permeate just about every aspect of this. Uh, Pierre Polly, of course, jumped right up and said, well, the government's got to shut it down right now. Uh, is, is that a pragmatic solution? Is it a practical solution that to simply say, okay, no more? Or, or uh, even on the short term, it seems as if there may be some merit to the prime minister's assertion that it's like whack-a-mole. It's just going to move the problem someplace else. It will move the problem. Somebody says, I'm not sure what he meant by shut it down, put a barricade so people physically can't cross. Um, you know, uh, the thing is, the safe, the third safe country agreement doesn't give us the capacity to just to turn people away. We can turn them away at legal crossings. It doesn't say illegal. So unless there's a loophole that we could exploit and say we declare the entire border to be a legal crossing. But if you cross anywhere, we're considering you legally crossing and therefore we can turn you back. Um, you know, I think lawyers maybe should take a look at it too, but you know, short of that, it is whack-a-mole. Um, you close down um, the, the crossing at Roxham, people are gonna cross elsewhere. And uh, there, you know, there's, Roxham is, between, the other option is declare Roxham a legal place. That's one thing you could do is just, you know, put up a little hut there with a guard and say, this is now a legal crossing point. We declare it so, that he could do. Will people find another spot close to it? Maybe, but that would be, I think perhaps the only immediate solution to that particular spot. It, that's an interesting aspect of this too. I mean, it's it's almost like it's a, a catch twenty two, isn't it, Tasha? That you know, the agreement itself, the the, the safe third party or third country agreement, uh, talks about legal crossings. So you, you can't say, oh, by the way, if you're going to cross illegally, this is the process. I mean, that seems somewhat counterproductive mm-hmm. to having an agreement, doesn't it? Well, right. I think it is loophole that people either didn't foresee or didn't think would be exploited in this way. Maybe they didn't think people would be that desperate or take the risks because, you know, it wasn't just two years ago. A a man died recently um, crossing at the same spot near Roxham um, and uh, he, he wasn't properly dressed for the weather and he froze to death. So, you know, desperate people will do desperate things, but we don't want to put them in that situation either because it can have a horrible outcome. Uh, to, just to cover up on the politics once again, and I, it's not unusual, of course, for Trudeau and, and, and Pauly have to be butting heads on this. So they do have probably just about everything. But contrary points of view, whether or not today's Thursday, I guess, if you were to ask them. But Sean Fraser <laughs> stepped into this. He's the, uh, he's the education or immigration minister, rather. He seems very sympathetic to Quebec's situation right now, saying, look, this is putting way too much pressure on them. Uh, I think we can do something here. So it, it sounds like cooler heads are prevailing here. Uh, if you know, if you can just ignore the political theater here for a second, uh, it, there seems to be a real desire to try to find a solution. Well, there could be. I mean, I hope so. And it's it's the kind of thing that resonates with people because there's a fairness element to it as well. Um, and that's what the liberals have to be careful. You know, it is now going beyond the borders of Quebec uh, in terms of a news story. It is also something that people look at and go, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, I, as a newcomer, it's not just you know, people who were born in Canada who the stereotype, oh, they don't want people to jump the queue. No, no. If you're a newcomer to Canada and you waited patiently in your home country uh, to come here, you went through a legal process, you know, is it fair that someone else can just jump the queue, whereas you maybe even have still relatives in that country that are waiting patiently, have gone through the hoops? It makes people angry on a very large number of, of different metrics. So I think liberals have to be careful about that because this is becoming a fairness story, not simply a Quebec story. 
And like you say, the uh, the, the the pretext, the context of this is 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 this pressure right now in Canada to do something about what's going on in Haiti, and so uh, they th- this is front and center for them. I mean, you know, they've got them at the border. They've got the pressure from the United States right now to provide some some assistance uh, in in peacekeeping down there, uh, which mm-hmm. I guess is kind of a loose phrase. So it's uh, it's an ongoing and very fluid story. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Tasha. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again. Take care. Tasha Carrot and Principal at Navigator. And the uh, book is, is a good read. It's called uh, The Right Path, uh, talking about the, uh, the ups and downs of the conservative, small C conservative movement in this country over the next little while and trying to uh, carve a path forward for uh, conservative thinking people. Anyway, good read when you get some time and a cold winter's day like this one. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.